0: Welcome, this is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative podcast. The podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are, how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? and how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant, helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? My guest today is Alex Lukachko, a principal at RDH Building Science Inc and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's John H. Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape and Design. Alex is well known in Canada's building industry as an important thought leader in building science, zero carbon building design and climate change adaptation. An architect by training with degrees in both philosophy and architecture from the University of Waterloo, Alex currently leads an interdisciplinary consulting team at RDH in Toronto that works on advanced net zero carbon buildings. Alex works with multidisciplinary design teams and industry stakeholders for both new buildings and for deep energy retrofits of existing buildings. This gives them a broad view of the industry as well as the forces that need to be marshaled to significantly reduce building-related greenhouse gas emissions. At the University of Toronto, Alex teaches Masters of Architecture students about building performance, low-carbon design strategies and technologies, resilience and long-term adaptations to climate change. Outside of this work, Alex, his partner and their three kids lead an active, cycling-intensive life in Toronto, investing a little extra carbon each year to spend time at the edge of the ocean in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. In our conversation, Alex talks about the rapid change we face within the design and construction industry as we try to move the entire industry towards a goal of zero carbon and perhaps restorative construction that we need to address the climate crisis. He talks about the challenges of designing buildings for the long term, but he also talks about opportunities to help this effort if we look to the past. We also talked about what gives Alex hope and keeps him going when things look dark and the advice he would offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Alex, great to have you on the podcast. I've really been looking forward to this conversation.
1: Well, be great to be here, Craig, and I, I, I have been as well.
0: In the introduction to this episode, I provided our listeners with a brief biography of your career to date. Clearly, you're very passionate about sustainability and sustainable design. So why don't we start off by you talking about how sustainability and climate change have become such an important part of your career.
1: Sure. I mean, I, yeah, I think, I think for the real interest in sustainability, I think probably, unlike many people, you have to go back pretty far. Like as a, as a kid playing outdoors, observing nature, you know, seeing those connections, that's probably where it all starts. Because I can't say that I started out in university to be directly engaged in sustainability. And, and actually, I, I took a kind of weird path to get here. I originally started in philosophy. I thought that that was important, and just for a bit of context, I'm in the design and construction industry. My family was full of architects. I had three uncles who were architects, uh, different kinds of practices. All of them did a pretty good job as I was a teenager to try and dissuade me from joining the profession. What is
0: it with architects trying to dissuade people from <laughs> from becoming architects? I've had when I was thinking about it as well a number of architects that oh you don't want to do that. It's like course, that
1: made me want to do that. Yeah, I, right. Maybe it was successful. Their efforts were successful for a short period of time, because I, I went to philosophy first, and I thought, this makes sense. And I had, uh, you know, two and a half years of an immense amount of fun reading, thinking about, uh, by the way, primarily like ethics, and, and started thinking about environmental ethics and environmentalism generally, did some learning in that, that area. But so I got drawn back in. So good priming for architecture and finally sustainability. Oh, you just didn't know it at the I time. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. I didn't know it at the time. But I got drawn back in, you know, and I, I wanted, a, well, I wanted more of a career. So after that diversion, got got into architecture. And the sustainability part, you know, we learned about sustainable design. This was uh, just mid-1990s. So uh, LEED, for instance, had been launched. The U.S. Green Building Council was gaining popularity, attention. Design professionals were uh, kind of latching onto that. And it wasn't too many years after that that municipalities started picking up LEED as the kind of default standard for what sustainable or green design would be. I think we probably would have said green design at the time, right?
0: Yeah, and and, and LEED was very powerful because it gave both corporations and institutions something of a common checklist and also they like the idea of getting medals i thought that was brilliant on the part of usgbc and cagbc to have gold medals like everyone wants a
1: gold medal yeah yeah it's a very clever structure and so it was it was definitely gaining traction and we learned about that in school but the questions that i had think i'm thinking you know third year fourth year just just finishing the undergraduate degree in architecture are we really making a difference with all of this? because at the time, not to pick too much on on the lead system, but you know we were talking about adding photovoltaics to the roof of a building. It's a normal building but it's got renewable energy. Is that green design? Is that something that's really sustainable? We had to take some small steps uh, as an industry, of course, but I was at that time very focused on as a designer, how do you know that you're making the right choice like how, how does that happen? so towards the end of my undergraduate degree, I started learning a little bit more about building science. I took a course that was offered by uh, now a colleague of mine, John Straub at the University of Waterloo. I think it was his first course in architecture. He was coming from the engineering side, had a a background in building science, and his first course was called How to Practice Architecture So You Don't Get Sued, which appealed to me immediately. He's a very charismatic teacher as well. He's a lot of fun. Oh, he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was an amazing class, but... We got directly into measuring things, and we talked about performance. What are buildings supposed to do? How long are they supposed to last? And if you want to improve buildings, well, how are you going to do that? you got to measure. You've got to think about things. And another, another really interesting part of that building science diversion was dealing with change in the industry. You know, like if you want to understand new materials and their applications, if you want to change the way the buildings go together, you gotta understand it from a scientific perspective rather than the traditional historical one that's more convention-based that the the building industry kind of thrives around. And at that time, so much change in the industry, so much excitement about sustainable design, these things made a lot of sense to me. That we should be predicting building performance. We should be intentionally making changes and measuring whether we could we could do that. So that's the sort of starting point for me. I didn't really go back. I worked in architecture firms as a co-op student in my undergraduate degree. I took my master's degree and focused specifically on sustainable design. And I started working for building science companies because we were doing the kind of work that I wanted to do on buildings that were better, you know. So
0: green design, as it used to be called, and building science have been your life so so what are some of the most important lessons you've learned from your work as a building science specialist uh, about how to address the key issues of climate change but also how to adapt to it and are there any key um, lessons that, that you think are most important
1: yeah I think, I think there are a few that i would I would mention uh, you know one i've learned that we're not very good at planning for something that is outside of our immediate experience and and in the future, and in coming the future. at us in the future. Yeah, I mean, we're in the building industry. Yeah. We're, we're building buildings that we know are going to exist for more than decades, generations, perhaps centuries. But do we really have strategies for thinking about that? No, we don't. We don't do it in a systematic way. And that may have been fine in the past because we were dealing with traditional materials, uh, similar programs, uh, a relatively static industry. But now things are changing rapidly and we don't really have the tool set to, to think about what those long-term consequences are or how we should plan for them. So that's one. I guess another lesson that I've learned, especially thinking about how we're going to design to uh, limit the impact of climate change and and how we're going to adapt to it, we're not really limited by technology here. I've you know, got all the technology we need. Well, buildings are not complicated things. Yeah. I can remember I did a, a consulting project for the U.S. Department of Energy, working with a different firm, Building Science Corporation. Great name for a company. They they got in pretty early. They had a contract with uh, the U.S. Department of Energy looking at advanced housing, and we studied side by side comparisons of different construction techniques, looking at high performance housing, energy efficient. This was you know a while ago, so we were talking about energy efficiency primarily, and measuring the energy use. And the end result was if you built Side-by-side identical houses on the same street, same climate, just using different technology. The real difference was not in the technology, it was in the people, you know. There would be a three to one difference in energy use. Just by behavior. Yeah, that was related to people's behavior. And when we work to drive down the energy use of the building itself and all the components that are directly related to the building, it's the people. That are really left there. So I don't think that you know we've got a lot of technology that that we can deploy in buildings. Buildings are not that sophisticated to begin with. We're not really limited by that. We're more limited by thinking about uh, what we use these buildings for and how we use them. And then just maybe the the last thing that I would say is a as a lesson to learn that's been kind of a continuous learning experience for me in my career has been that. If we want to deal with change in the design and construction industry, we got to look outside the industry. This is a very tradition-based industry and very inward-focused. But things like the financial aspects of buildings, like that's a break. We could design using the available technology a sustainable building. We could know what that is. We could convince people that it's the right thing, but if it doesn't get funded properly, if it doesn't… Yeah, and
0: right now, mortgages are for 25 to 30 years, so… People aren't thinking beyond that in terms of what they're going to finance, and that has a big impact. What about you said buildings are very simple. What about promising strategies and technologies for helping us reduce environmental harm we are causing? So, you've got the building. Is there anything else we should be thinking about, or is it
1: how we design the building solely? Where do you think the opportunities are there? Well, I, I think there's a massive opportunity yeah. because uh, in our d- history of building buildings, we've got plenty of examples of sustainable strategies that involve local materials, local manufacturing methods, building buildings that are durable, last. They may not have always been comfortable if you go back uh, centuries. Well, you had to wear a sweater or a, or a tweed coat or something, right? right. And, and warm socks. Yeah, well, and certainly people live yeah. differently in the We have higher expectations for buildings now, but we have a very rich history. In fact, if you take away the last 150 to 200 years where we've adapted and industrialized process for the materials we use for the design approach, all fueled by energy to kind of achieve our performance standards. If you take that out of the picture, we actually have a lot of what we need. We just have to look at the past, identify strategies from all around the world, all climate zones, and then bring those back into modern design. I think that's the most promising part, because as I said, buildings that themselves are not that complicated. We can learn from the past.
0: So it's not about a new PV for renewable energy, it's about how we learn from the past, for example, thick masonry walls that will act as a energy inertia source to cool in the summer and, and warm in the winter.
1: Yeah, and it's about the architecture, right? Like the older buildings that didn't rely on external energy sources to the degree that we do – they did environmental control, like the separation between inside and outside and that uh, creation of, of the appropriate interior environment. They did it with the architecture. So yes, the materials that we used, but the design orientation, taking advantage of daylight, the wind disposition on the, on the site, like really thinking about using available energies on the site, and then the passive techniques that relate to the building skin, the enclosure of the building. Those are all directly part of architectural design that we just have kind of walked away from, but we need to return to.
0: How do we make this happen? What do you think are the best ways to drive large-scale change and large-scale action?
1: Yeah, I I think that, I mean, there are many efforts in this area, but I, I have a feeling that the best way to do this is through teaching. You know, and if Which you, you do. Well, right. <laughs> right yeah. Yeah. But here's the reason. You know, in the industry, in the short period of time that I've been involved in the design and construction industry, there's been a massive change. And we talked about, just, just to establish that timeline there, you know, the year 2000 to 2005, somewhere in there, almost every building started coming with a sustainability goal of some sort, right? And then very quickly since then, now we're talking not so much about energy, but we're talking about carbon. We're talking about connecting our efforts in buildings to the bigger picture. And, and well energy was always a proxy for carbon but now i think
0: people are recognizing no it's it's carbon because there's also embodied carbon and that you can't separate
1: yeah well right yeah. like the, the yeah it is now a much richer and more specific more globally connected conversation and it's really changing the way that we design buildings but you go back so the first energy standards related to energy efficiency in buildings were you know 1975 ASHRAE Standard 90, kind of on the tail end of the energy cost crisis. Energy crisis, crisis, right. So you go back that far, that's essentially within a lifetime, uh, certainly within a practitioner's career. Now we're talking about building net zero carbon buildings, buildings that are restorative. So to connect this to this timeline, to teaching, students that are in school right now need to be learning about how buildings will need to be, will need to perform 15 years from now, you know, like. They have to finish their degree, join a firm. Fifteen years from now, they'll be key decision makers. Maybe they'll be principals of of architecture firms. And if they join practice today, they're not going to learn from most common construction, the techniques that we need. They need to be thinking about not just the 15-year time frame, but the rest of their career going forward. And we know that that connects to our period of time for action to limit global warming. Yeah, and I think
0: students now have a bigger conceptual challenge for their career, because when you and I graduated, there was a sense that even though there was an impending challenge of climate change looming, and then it was looming as opposed to on us, you could still see the past as being instructive for the future, that the future would be climate-wise the same as the past, more or less. And where students now know that whatever is now is not going to be the same in five, 10, 15, 20 years. So they're designing for worlds that are not here yet. Yeah. The way we weren't. I mean, it adds a, a, a level of complexity and difficulty that is exponential. And you can see it. I mean, we're both teaching a course in, in sea level rise adaptation right now at the University of Toronto. And you can just see it in the kind of questions that, that come at us is that sense of Wow, this is indeterminate. How do we approach this? Well, that's what we're all going to try and figure out because we're all in the same in the same situation.
1: Yeah, I, don't, I think it's pretty true that we don't have the like you and I don't have the answers for those students because what we're really talking about is a a totally different way of building. It's going to be a new architecture. It, you know, you were asking about driving large scale change, and I started talking about teaching architecture students. But there's one more connection there that I think is important. Teaching students to prepare for the future, you know, we can establish the context for the problem, they'll find the solutions. But I think architects have an ability to picture the future, right? Like that's part of what they're trained to do. And so that has the larger scale impact because they'll be able to show what that future could be like and build for it.
0: What do you think are going to be the biggest challenges or barriers to coming to grips with how to deal with these realities of climate change and adaptation?
1: Yeah, I I think we need need to go back to something we mentioned before, thinking long-term. You know, we're just, we need to be able to plot out future scenarios, because it's not just as simple as thinking, what are things going to be like in 50 years? Because they're going to be a lot different than they are right now, mm-hmm. you know? So that rate of change yeah. is increasing and there's uncertainty around the end of it. Once we get past 2050, 2100, the predictions diverge. It depends heavily on what we do in the next uh, couple decades. So I think understanding what those predictions are, that's a barrier that has to be integrated into our design thinking. I mean, Probably more generally in our society, we need to be integrating this into the way we think about the future. But specifically about the design and construction industry, we need to understand what that framework is. We need to understand what the scenarios are, and then we need to project out our thinking so that we make decisions that are really focused on the long term, not you know what's happening in the next year or two, or or what the funding of the building is in this particular at this particular time. What stopping us from doing this, or what will st- Get in our way from achieving this? Well, I mean, I mentioned that the financial aspects of buildings are a pretty powerful break on what we're able to do to change. And, you know, I, th- I think just having access to the information is one thing. It's, it's been interesting since August with the IPCC update report, the uh, sixth assess- assessment report. There's been a lot more awareness of what climate change will bring and where we are relative to our goals of limiting future temperature rise, that's good. So at least people have a window into it, and I, I think people are going to learn a lot more about that. But just knowing where we're going is not quite enough. We have to get everyone else on board, and to, to do that, a big challenge will be understanding why buildings are put together, how they're put together in terms of you know, the financial aspects, how owners of buildings are themselves planning for the future. And I, I think that that's an issue that we have to tackle. What about opportunities then? What are some of the key
0: opportunities for helping deal with these challenges and, and the impacts of climate change, impacts and adaptation? What do you see as big opportunities?
1: Well, again, I see opportunities every day with, <laughs> with buildings. right? I mean, we, we have to deal with new construction and I don't actually think that we're too limited in terms of technology and what we can do with new, new construction. But the existing building stock that's there is, well, we're going to have to reduce emissions. We're going to have to maintain that investment in carbon rather than spending more carbon building new buildings. But the opportunities are in the decisions that we make about the repair, the maintenance, the upkeep of buildings on a pretty much daily basis. You know, we see the built environment as being relatively permanent from our day-to-day experience, but in reality, it's constantly in change. So if we could keep that long-term view and understand what we need to do to adapt buildings, there are opportunities all the time to make improvements slowly in that, in that direction.
0: I totally agree with focusing on existing building stock because architects are about building new buildings primarily. I mean, that's our stock and trade. But when you think of the percentage of new buildings compared to the existing building stock, you can't have that much impact on emissions or adaptation for that matter, if you're just focused on new stock. Like it's three or 4% per year of the total building stock at most. So we have to find strategies for dealing with the existing building stock. That's, That's really key. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the 21st Century Imperative podcast. We've certainly enjoyed producing it. As you know, 21st Century is a not-for-profit venture, but we still have production costs. So to help cover these costs, we've launched a new online store with all proceeds going to cover production. And we have some great products for you. We have organic fair trade t-shirts and hoodies, as well as non-toxic BPA-free coffee containers, all with great graphics. So if you like the podcast, please think about helping us out by buying a t-shirt, hoodie, or mug for you and one for each of your friends. Head over to our website at tfcipodcast.com and click on the 21st Century Store button. Mm-hmm. Segwaying from buildings to cities, uh, the bigger building fabric, the density of cities has a huge impact on their greenhouse gas emissions per capita. The denser the city, the lower the emissions per capita. However, it's often equipped It's not how dense you make a city that counts, it's how you make it dense. Actually, both the extent and quality of density are important. What are your thoughts on the kinds of buildings that we should be building to reduce per capita greenhouse gas emissions and still create humane
1: and great places to live? Yeah, I think that there's so much to be said about that. I I think, you know, again, I'm going to take a kind of technical approach to this. I think that if we're building urban environments for people over the long term, thinking about adaptation to climate change, we have to be building buildings that are more resilient than the ones that we're building right now. And there are challenges for certain types of buildings. So density, for instance, I think probably many people are thinking about largely built-up downtown areas, taller buildings, more people living in the same square footage of urban space. Those buildings are really challenging for a number of reasons if we think about both reducing emissions and adaptation to future climate change and that kind of resiliency they offer. So, like a tall residential building, mostly glass and aluminum, highly thermally conductive, those buildings don't work well when there's no power. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in fact, right. they they may not be livable within hours. Well, there's no power
0: not only for heat or cool, yeah. but for getting water up to them pumping yeah. water.
1: For getting water up to them, yeah. for keeping ventilation air yeah. on. Many of these buildings don't have, they don't have a mode of operation that is fully passive. Like you could turn the power off or or the, yeah, you lose uh, electrical service and you could just continue living in the building. The windows can't open in many of these buildings. Heating and cooling is going to be a major challenge depending on what climate you're in. Far south, losing air conditioning in, in, in a when you're sitting in a glass box without any kind of shading any kind of external protection for the sun these things are not going to last some of that is a comment about how we put together these larger buildings and we could certainly work on that but if you if you think about density not as tall but instead wider like european density uh, like uh,
0: eight stories block construction yeah. that's as dense as the as vancouver's uh, right. platform and tower
1: if we build buildings Eight to 10 stories now yeah they're going to take up more space but we're i'm just thinking about the city of toronto where we're we're having this conversation we're in the process of infilling a lot of industrial areas in the downtown area there's still space within our established grid but if you keep it less than 10 stories Right now, we would be able to build mass timber structures, mm-hmm. reducing right. that that first investment, that right. early investment in uh, in carbon in the building, right. a lowered embodied carbon by a third. Yeah, yeah. We would also have a different kind of profile, a surface area of the building that we could, you know, potentially generate a higher percentage of the energy used by the building relative to. It. It's harder when the buildings right. get taller, you know. So I think that and there you are can walk that. up and down. Yeah, like yeah. if the elevator,
0: if the power goes off. In a big storm, there are going to be a number of them. Yeah. You can walk up and down.
1: And the the mains, the water mains, will pump up to 10 stories in Toronto. Right. So, so it, all these things kind of fit together. And it does tackle that, that other dynamic. It's not, you know, the building energy use, we can dramatically reduce. But what about people and their lifestyle? You know, so, you know, we're giving them options if we're in that 10 story or below range
0: yeah I'm I, I'm a big fan of the six to ten story solution for density a courtyard block scheme having lived in in Europe for a year just looked around and went wait a minute this really works in so many different ways what about the shift from fossil fuel energy to renewable energies we should talk a bit about that right now renewable energy PV and wind power is less than net parity so it's less than the cost of making electricity with coal but The fossil fuel systems are really deeply bedded in our economy and our systems. How are we going to bridge the gap between where we are now with our fossil fuel infrastructure and where we need to go? Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Well, I I think with, with, again, with buildings, I think it's, it's an easier problem than maybe with other aspects of our energy supply. Buildings are highly networked. You know, we have electricity running to every building. We have gas running to every building. We can switch between those two. And as I mentioned before, buildings are in a constant state of change with replacement cycles. So there are opportunities to take out equipment, put equipment back in. So a conversion away from fossil fuels is fairly practical if it's planned for in advance. A key, a key element of that, if we want to do... Fuel switching, if we want to electrify our buildings rather than depend on fossil fuel, we're going to have to do deep energy retrofits that address the skin of the building, the windows, those things have to be. But all of these components are replaced in a building over time. Mm -hmm. So it's really a matter of figuring out when is the right time to make this intervention. And because these buildings are all networked together on the utility grids, it's just a matter of systematically switching from one to the other.
0: Yeah, and right now in commercial buildings and multi-unit res, I think the amount of energy for heating both water and air is like 30% gas. So already a lot of the building is powered by electricity. So it's really the next 30 to 40% that has to switch over.
1: Yeah, and I think that's especially true when you get into well-insulated buildings that are, you know, not as, uh, we're not spending as much of the energy on heating and cooling and the heating side, yeah, we can pull a lot of that gas out. High-rise residential buildings have, have a challenge in that one of the most effective ways to heat hot water in buildings at the moment is using fossil fuels. That portion is really difficult to remove entirely, but technology is developing around that as well. So big picture, I think there are lots of technical solutions, and we know that there's this timeline of constant change in buildings that present opportunities for us to systematically turn over our technology from one to the other.
0: So we've talked about adaptation and reducing emissions, but there's all the CO2 in the atmosphere right now, much too much causing all the problems that are associated with climate change and the impacts. A few months ago, the Thomas Crowther lab at ETH Zurich published a paper in science about the capacity of the planet for planting trees to reduce CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. And there's been big debate about that. What are your thoughts on this and other strategies for removing carbon from the atmosphere?
1: I think these are exciting big picture thoughts, right? I I think that, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to being able to implement some of these ideas at a very large scale but I am a little worried, though, because the when we hold these ideas out there as potential big picture fixes, you know, big impact, make one decision and and implement it, it seems to me to be a lot like our conventional thinking about infrastructure. You know, we spend a lot of money. This for, is
0: back to your your philosophy and moral harm, potential for
1: moral harm. Yeah, and I I wonder that we're we're making decisions in the right way, and I, you know, I also think it distracts us from that steady change that we need to be making that is actually a, a lot of effort from a lot of different people so when we hold these ideas out there uh, you know i have confidence that there are many people working in that direction and and figuring out really clever ways of implementing these things but we can't take our eyes off the fact that changes that we can make all of us right now are really where we should be putting a lot of our focus in the next couple decades
0: yeah i'm i'm also worried that by focusing on how to get the CO2 out of the atmosphere, we'll take our eye off the ball on, on stopping the emissions that we're already putting into the atmosphere. But I think we've got to figure out how to do both. I just, we, yeah. we don't have a choice, right? Because it's not going to go away. Well, it will go away over eons, but the kind of impacts it's having right now are, are so devastating.
1: Yeah, and that, that, that's what I'm thinking, that, that time-wise, we got to do both. But reducing the emissions is the priority now. Taking carbon and out of the And we can do atm-
0: it yeah. at scale, right? Yeah. We can't do the other at scale right
1: now. Not right now. Yeah. So we can, we have time for that, but we have to be acting to reduce emissions uh, pretty, pretty boldly right now.
0: Segwaying from dealing with pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere um, to some of the real impacts that that CO2 is now causing. Both of us are now teaching a seminar in sea level rise adaptation, and it, has raised the question of what we do about climate refugees, the impacts of climate change and the kind of refugee crisis that's gonna come out of it. The IPCC special report on ocean and cryosphere in changing climate is now forecasting that almost a billion people living in low-lying coastal areas have we talked about in the course, will be affected by sea level rise by, by 2050. This will be one of the most critical challenges the world faces in the future. What are some of the approaches to meeting this
1: challenge that cities can lead? Yeah, the students have been looking at case study cities all over the world, and they've been learning about the sea level rise adaptation strategies in broad terms. You know, do you, do you build walls? Do you retreat from the coast? When you think about urban environments, and many cities are located at the coastal line and, and are gonna directly deal with this, the problem becomes more complicated really quickly you know and you you know you're talking about the number of people big picture that are going to be affected by this but i don't think people have a really good understanding of how fast that this is going to happen how significant this impact is going to be for many communities and how few options there are that are feasible some cities around the world like new york city for instance uh, lower manhattan They've got billions of dollars to, to build a so wall. So they're planning to build a wall around it. Right. They can do that. And it, and it probably makes sense because there's there are not too many other options that are viable. But that's the path that they're going to be committed to. There are other cities that are already experiencing flooding on a regular basis and the effects of storm surge at increasingly higher levels that don't have the financial resources to, to uh, they may not have the geography either
0: yeah, to that you to could build, build a wall. wall anyway yeah
1: so if you're going to talk about other strategies many of them involve moving either slowly over time because these these changes do last over centuries or or so like that's how we're going to see this very slow change so there is time to move buildings like literally move them or relocate communities in a slow and organized fashion but even that you know brings up the question of where are you moving to? We're talking about hundreds of millions of people, many of whom will will, will not have easy access to, to land immediately adjacent to the city that they're currently living in. Yeah, they're going to be moving across borders. So even if you don't live in a coastal situation over the next hundred years or so, we are going to have to figure out what the best approach is to accommodate people moving from one area to another. Canada's a not a bad place to to move to, we've got the space certainly, right?
0: Yeah, and and Doug Saunders recently wrote
1: a great book called Maximum
0: Canada, where he put forward the idea of Canada really needing 100 million people to be economically sustainable as well as environmentally sustainable. We're at like 36 now, so there's a lot of room for growth. And maybe this is one of the places, I, I not maybe, this should be one of the places where we look at how to accommodate those refugees but certainly around the world that billion is a huge number that's a lot of people to accommodate
1: and and we have to do it yeah. you know if we're <laughs> sea level rise i think is a it, again it brings it into focus quite clearly because you can map out those projections as you say you can literally map it onto the city and you yeah buildings will be underwater people will need to move yeah. some other climate change impacts you know i think we think about in a more abstract way we're uncertain about what the weather patterns are going to be is it, is it going to be well we know it's going to be hotter but is it is that really going to have a major impact there are going to be more rain events but none of those things seem like they would fundamentally upset or shift entire cities but sea level rise will and and i i i think that's the the missing link here that we need to be addressing is that this change at least for that billion or 1.2 billion people is is going to be uh, inevitable. Yeah, a significant portion of that billion is because of sea level rise.
0: What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves?
1: Well, I, th- I think that we, we need to broaden our questions a little bit. You know, talked about the 1975 oil cost crisis or the 1970s and then that 1975 introduction of energy codes in buildings thinking again about the design and construction industry, so much of our focus on sustainability has used energy as kind of a short-form... A proxy. Yeah, a proxy for wider environmental damage. And it's great that we're now talking about carbon because that's really connecting the embodied carbon in buildings, the operational carbon over the lifespan of buildings to action that we need to take on the global level. That's a very positive change. But we're still talking only about climate change, we are not talking about other very important parts. Like of, ecological uh, impacts. Yeah. Well, think about the materials that we use and their long-term impact on, on yeah. the Either biology. pulling them
0: out of the ground or tossing them as garbage back
1: into the ground. We have big problems yeah. there. Yeah. And yeah, there, there are lots of examples in the building industry of us identifying, uh, well, mostly driven by human health-related issues, identifying problematic products and, and systematically eliminating them. Why are they there in the first place? And and what have we done with all of this material after we've used it in buildings? Those are challenges. And that's just about you know the physical aspects of buildings, let alone conversation about biodiversity, building or rebuilding are the ecology around us.
0: Who's missing from the discussion? Are there people who we should be paying more attention to or have roles that don't currently have roles in this discussion?
1: we need an indigenous view of sustainability integrated into our, our thinking. And to me, that connects very strongly to the past, right? Learning lessons from sustainable modes of interacting, uh, sustainable built environments in in uh, different parts. And we need these examples from all over the world. Literally every climate area in the, in the world needs lessons on how to live in a more connected and tied way to the environment itself. So, so we need those voices we need that that experience and uh, we need it sooner than later
0: what do you think alex can we do it are we going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems what gives you hope what keeps you going when things are looking dark it does seem pretty dark
1: in day to day day to day life <laughs> and every day seems a bit darker <laughs> it it does but you know hey what gives me hope is watching students that i'm i'm teaching tackle these problems because they first of all they want to you know they have that that motivation to do it they believe that their work can make a difference yeah and as shocking as it is again thinking about our sea level rise course that's a pretty heavy content to to work through to really understand the time frame and what we're up against and in addition the uncertainty the future uh, holds Tackling that is a is a major challenge, and they absorbed it. They they thought about it. They struggled with it. In a few short weeks, they're now engaged in solving the problem. Yeah. I yeah, I don't know that I would have done could have done that. You know, our but challenges in architecture school seemed a lot lot less important. Oh, far less. But they are tackling it right yeah. now, and that gives me a, a lot of hope. What
0: advice would you offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of 21st century imperative and maintaining hope?
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I think that anyone could benefit from that long-term view. You know, thinking about what, what decisions you're making in the timeframes that we are talking about for significant climate change. Thinking about the impact that you can have in the next 10 or 20 years focusing on that because we know, we know that that is critical if we want to limit what the future scenarios are going to look like, if we want to limit our uncertainty about the future. And so I I think in there, there's action that all of us can take. And we benefit from that long-term view and thinking about decisions we're making that way in many ways beyond just limiting our emissions right now. This could be building for a much better future than we have right now. I think that's very helpful, Alex. I think our long-term worries about the future impacts
0: of climate change definitely need to be accompanied by longer-term thinking about the way we design buildings. So shifting gears, I would like to ask you three questions that I typically ask all of my guests at the end of our conversations. The first question is, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend
1: or give to other people? Stuart Brand, How Buildings Learn. Oh, that's a great book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been around for a while, but it is so relevant right now to, to understanding how things, how, how buildings are going to change over time, recognizing that in, and integrating it into our design thinking about the future. Yeah, we, we, we got to have everyone read that book, I think, if they're involved in this industry. Along with this whole Earth Catalog. I'm yeah. not even sure if that's still published or
0: not, but that I remember seeing that years ago when I was a student, thinking this is the coolest thing I've ever. Oh, seen.
1: I and I think you can you can find it because the people that have those books treasure them. Yeah, right. So you, you might not be I able to buy. I think someone it in borrowed your, mine. <laughs> most likely they did. A second
0: question: If you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in communities and cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing emissions. And or dealing with the impacts of climate change, what would it be,
1: and why? You can't use fossil fuels in buildings. It's a, it's a it's a it's a practical change to make. Awesome, we, we got to do it. <laughs> I we, agree, hundred percent. We know that it's happening, and <laughs> yeah. you know people will, uh, you know, will argue about it. But this is like within a decade, uh, we can make that we can make that happen.
0: We've got all the technology. We know what to do. Yeah, it's all there. I agree, hundred percent. Excellent. Third question. If you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times or the Globe and Mail of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be?
1: It it, it would be like, no matter what the paper was, you know, you would pick the sea level rise impacts for for that area. For that city. For that city. And I, I've seen some really interesting graphic representations of where the waterline would be superimposed over very familiar spaces for people. And I, I think it's a really powerful way of showing people what the future holds. Like a map of the city with a topographic
0: line of, of how the city will be inundated over time.
1: Yeah, or, or like your view, you know, like yeah. here's what you would see walking down your street and here's where the waterline would be. That single image gets people thinking about what the impacts are going to be for them. They can immediately see what the impacts would yeah. be for others in other parts yeah. of the world and just be engaged with that that reality that we're going to face. That's that's a powerful image. And closing question,
0: is there anything you would like to ask of our listeners?
1: Yeah, I I, w- I would like to ask people to pause and think back to your childhood connection with nature, with the outdoors, with the way that you observed things to work, and then bring that back into your daily life again, that gets lost. And we talk a lot about carbon, we talk about changes, we talk, we are immersed in the painfulness of dealing with this problem, but those earlier motivations, those basic motivations, that's why we're doing it, and, and that should be recalled back into our, uh, our life. I think, I think all, the, all of us can do that.
0: That's very thoughtful. Thank you. And where can people reach you? What
1: What are your social media coordinates? <laughs> I don't. I, do, I don't have social media co- coordinates. <laughs> I don't think. Okay. Uh, LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. You can find me on uh, okay, LinkedIn. Okay. Well,
0: we'll put your LinkedIn profile down there. Thank okay. you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thanks, Craig. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash podcast. This podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So... If you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.